All right, if you're having a seat, please turn with me to Acts, or Exodus, sorry, Exodus, other end of the Bible, Exodus chapter 19. Uh, and as we begin, I want to, I'm going to make a confession. Uh, I, there's something in me, I don't, I often don't like rules. Um, I, I, sometimes I'll see a rule and I just go, you know, I just feel like the person who wrote that kind of want to, wants to make my life less fun, right? That's why the rule rule exists. I, you know, and I, I don't know if you have ever felt that before, but there, there are certain rules that kind of uh, elicit that response in me. One is uh, when I'm, when I'm walking by a doorway and it says no admittance or it says authorized personnel only, right? Immediately my mind thinks, okay, the good stuff's behind the door, right? There's a reason that they're not letting me in and they should let me in. And uh, I will also confess that, um, I, want, I want to say occasionally, but like more than occasionally, I have uh, completely horrified my wife because I'll see a door like that and I'll kind of look this way and look that and I'll just go and open that door and I'll start walking. And she's like, no, 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 you can't. I go, yeah, I can it's okay. You know, that, that, that doesn't really completely apply to me, right? Let, let me just check. There's good stuff behind the door, right? And she's, ah, don't, don't do it. Uh, and, and she has never come in with me. Um, you know, she's, her rule following is a little tighter than mine. Uh, another place that, it, that I feel this uh, from time to time is, uh, and I want to apologize ahead of time to any officers of law who are sitting here, but um, I learned a few years ago that in, in parking lots, right, private parking lots, the, the traffic signs are not actually enforced, by the police, right? So um, I remember at one point in time when my son was, he was just starting to drive, right? And he was riding with me through the Kroger parking lot and I was pulling up toward a stop sign and I saw the stop sign and then I just accelerated through. He's like, dad, dad, you can't do it. And I said, that's okay. It doesn't apply to me. <laughs> right? But I know it's, it's horrible and you're like, oh my gosh, this, how did they let him preach? But you know... <laughs> You know you felt that, right? Maybe it's a different rule for you. It's the don't touch the wet paint. You're like, oh, I have to touch it. Or you're going through a, a school zone. It says no cell service or no, you know, don't use your cellular. But you're like, it's okay, I'm, I'm on my headset and I just won't talk for a minute, right? You don't actually hang up, right? I mean, there's, there's always something that's like, ah, kind of chafe under the rules. And I don't know if you've ever felt that when you're reading the Bible. But there are a lot of rules in the Bible. You ever felt that you're reading the Bible like, okay, Maybe God just included that one to make my life a little less fun. You ever felt that moment? What's going on there? Well, I would argue that the problem is not with the rules itself. The problem is with us, right? I'm, I'm, the, I'm the problem and you're the problem. We're, we're the problem. There's something broken in us that, that pushes back. It's innate. It's inherent in us. We just push back. Because uh, if we truly understand God's rules, he gives us his rules because he loves us. He gives us his rules because he wants the best life possible for us. So this morning we're going to look at uh, the most famous set of rules in the entire Bible. It's called the Ten Commandments. Uh, I realized this week as I was preparing that I've never actually preached a sermon on the Ten Commandments. I have taught the Ten Commandments as I'm teaching the biblical covenants. I'm going through Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and New. And I have like three hours of lecture notes on the Mosaic Covenant. But I promise this, this morning I'm going to cut it down. We won't be here three hours. But uh, I thought, you know, that's really interesting. I've never actually preached a sermon on the most famous list of rules in the Bible, which is engraved in stone all over this, this country. And so what I want to do in our time together is I want to I just answer the question, why is it here? Right? Why did God give this particular list at this point in time? And how does it apply to us as the church? All right, so we're going to answer those two questions. Why is the list here and how does it apply to us as the church? I want to begin reading in Exodus chapter 19. And I'm going to give you three principles 
uh, from the law as we unpack the Ten Commandments, beginning in Exodus chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from the Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all of the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. First principle that I want to observe this morning is this. God's rules are actually rooted in relationship. Uh, what we're going to study this morning, it's called, it's called the, the Mosaic Covenant. Ten Commandments are part of a larger uh, body of literature called the Mosaic Covenant. It's a covenant. God is entering into this, this agreement, which is really a, a deeply personal relationship with Israel, in which they make promises to one another. And you notice how he addresses them. He says, you are my special possession. You are mine. And you don't say that to a stranger, do you? You only say that to people that you have a close relationship with, right? On my first date with Tristy, I didn't say my Tristy. Right? She'd be like, oh, that's kind of awkward. Right? I wouldn't have gotten to date number two. But now I say, you're mine. And she melts. Right? Because it's an expression of the intimacy of our relationship. And so God gave these rules to Israel to draw them into deeper relationship with him but also in the context of that relationship so that they would be transformed and they could influence the nations around them, right? So that the nations around them would see uh, how they interacted with their God and what their God was like, and they would say, I want that kind of relationship too. Now, let me note from the outset that God did not give them the Ten Commandments in order to get them saved, but he didn't give them this list of rules and say, if you keep this rule, set of rules well, then you will earn eternal life and you will earn my affections. Okay? Dwight Pentecost observed years ago, he said, it's ex- extremely important to remember that the law of Moses was given to a redeemed people, not to redeem a people. Right? We, we just studied the, the Exodus a couple weeks ago, and at that point in time, the people expressed their faith to God, and, and they took a lamb, they, they slaughtered the lamb, they spread the blood, and they, they said, you know, we believe you, Lord. <laughs> That we will be safe and we will be rescued and redeemed. And the the destroyer will not step into our houses and and bring death, but instead bring life. And we'll be rescued and and, and brought out of slavery and into a relationship with you, right? They've been redeemed. And now God is beginning to build a relationship with them. Uh, Paul develops the same theme. uh, Galatians chapter 3 verse 21, he said, For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have been based on Law. In other words, Paul's saying, uh, whether it's the law of Moses or the best set of rules you can possibly come up with, laws don't impart life. Right? Laws, laws can't remove the debt of sin and give eternal life. The best that laws can do is manage behavior a little bit. So how did a person get saved in the Old Testament? The same way people in the New Testament get saved. Same, same way that from Genesis to Revelation, people have always entered into a relationship with God, and that's by grace through faith. So in Romans chapter 4, Paul will develop this theme, and he'll say, let's look at Abraham, because he's, he's kind of the founder of our faith, and let's use him as a paradigm. How was Abraham 
put into right relationship with God. And Paul will say, well, before he did any good works. In fact, before he had this rite of circumcision, which was just an outward symbol of his faith. In fact, it was 400 years before the law itself was given. Abraham was declared righteous by faith. That is, he believed God. He believed the promises of God. And God said, because you have believed me, I declare you're in right relationship with me. And he gave him the gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins, right? So it's, it's been the same from Genesis to Revelation. How do you enter into a relationship with God? Not by keeping a list of rules, but by grace through faith. God is a free gift, reaches out to you, and he initiates and he says, you're broken and dead in your sins, but I've dealt with that through my son, Jesus Christ. Believe in him. And the moment that you believe that debt of sins is removed forever, and God gives you the gift of eternal life. So, if that's true of the nation of Israel, why did God give them the Ten Commandments or the law? I want you to turn to chapter 20 and verse 18. Right? We're going to skip over the Ten Commandments for a moment. We'll come back in just a second and we'll, we'll unpack them. But I want you to read with me chapter 20, beginning in verse 18. It says, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and they stood at a distance, right? So God has given Moses the law on the mountain and they see the smoke and the lightning and the thunder. They hear the trumpet. And it says, Then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. For God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of you may remain with you, the fear of him may remain with you, so that you may not sin. Do you, do you see the paradox there? We've talked about this briefly before. Moses says to them, "Don't be afraid, right? Don't recoil from God. God has come in order that you would be afraid." Do you see the paradox? He's saying, "Revere God, but don't pull back from God." God has shown you His glory. He's given you His law. So that you can see that he is absolutely and utterly holy. In other words, you can see who God is. And so that you would be drawn to him. And so that you as an unholy people would learn how to live with a holy God. Right? It's, it's all about relationships. Right? God's rules are rooted in relationships. So, why at this point in time did he give them Ten. Why ten commandments? Why does, he, why does he start at this point? Remember we said a few weeks ago when we were looking at the plagues, ten is the number of completion in Hebrew thought. So ten plagues, but there were more than ten false gods. But the plagues demonstrated that God had power over all of the gods. Right? He had complete power over all Egyptian gods. Ten commandments shows that God's moral law is complete. There will in fact be more laws. If you read the rest of Exodus and you read Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are more laws, there are more rules. The Pharisees would take all of those and count them up meticulously and they determined there were 613 specifically laws. But the 10 is, in a sense, it's a synthesis or a summary. Jesus would take all of the law and the prophets and he'd say, let me synthesize it into two. Matthew chapter 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the entire law and prophets. Jesus says, let me sum up the entire thing for you and make it easy. The Pharisees have have stretched it out into 613, but really the essence of God's law is relationship. Love God and love your neighbor. 
Because when you love God and you put that relationship in right order, then your relationships with the people around you will be put in right order. And what is life? Life is relationship. What was the first and worst consequence of Adam and Eve's sin? Broken relationships. Right? Broken relationships. They were alienated from God. God used to walk with them in the cool of the day and they had perfect and intimate fellowship with God. And then when they sinned, they covered themselves up and they hid from God. And eventually they were taken out of the garden and they didn't get to walk in the cool of the day with the Lord. And they hid from one another as well. They covered over their nakedness. They weren't, they weren't transparent with one another any longer. And they were blaming one another for their sin. And then they had uh, children and the first recorded sin after they leave the garden is murder, Right? One brother kills another. What's the first and worst consequence of the fall? Broken relationships, fractured relationships. What do we need most? Harmonious relationships. Can you imagine how wonderful life would be if all of your relationships worked perfectly? Or you could, you could put up with anything else in life. If there was harmony at home and if there was harmony in the neighborhood and harmony in the office and harmony with your extended relatives, right, and your in-laws, right, all relationships harmonious, life would be good. Life would be good. And so the essence of these Ten Commandments, these rules, is relationship. So the first four are about loving God. And then five through ten are about loving your neighbor. Love God, love your neighbor. God's rules are rooted in relationship. Second, God's rules reveal God's character. Turn to chapter 20 and verse 1. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1. Then God spoke all of these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. First set of rules, four rules. Rules are not a bad thing, are they? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we kind of resist against them, but it's not bad to have rules. I don't know any of your parents, have you ever had a set of house rules that you, you know, maybe post on the refrigerator or maybe hang it on a wall, right? We've had multiple permutations through the years of different house rules that we've tried to use to kind of manage behavior. I came across one set this week that I thought was kind of interesting. Rules for our home. If you open it, close it. If you turn it on, turn it off. If you unlock it, lock it. If you value it, take care of it. If you make a mess, clean it up. If it belongs to someone else, get permission to use it. If you move it, take it out, or you are done with it, put it back. If you break it, report it. If you borrow it, return it. If it's not yours, don't touch it. If you don't know, ask. That's a set of house rules. What do you think? Would you post that in your house? It's it's not a bad set. And I'm not against house rules, right? But the, the person who authors the rules 
often reveals something about themselves, right? You notice what's repeated over and over in this set? It, 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 right? right? It's all about stuff. This is, this is a, a house in which they're trying to, trying to teach their kids to manage stuff and care for stuff, which is not a bad thing, but here's another set of rules. Uh, this is grandma's house rules. <laughs> Laugh, giggle, snuggle, play all the time. Kitchen open 24-7, sleepovers welcome, nothing but fun. Always more cookies, storytelling, dessert comes first. Expect to be spoiled. Remember, I love you, right? Which set of rules would you rather live under, right? Okay, parents' rules, grandma's rules, right? Parents' rules, grandma's rules, right? I'd rather live under grandma's rules. And there's just something warmer about that, right? It's about relationship. God's rules are about relationship. And God's rules reveal something about his character. So where does God start? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because the first and foremost relationship that you should have that will set all other relationships in order is your relationship with me. And so God's not saying here, you can have other gods, just don't put them equal to me. He's saying, no, no other gods. Literally, you shall have no other gods before my face. That is, keep them out of my face. (laughs) No other gods. Because a relationship with the one true God is by nature an exclusive relationship. Can you think of another relationship that's like that? Marriage, right? By nature, marriage is designed to be an exclusive relationship. I have, I have other friends, and I have a relationship with my kids, but I have one wife, right? I have one wife. It's an exclusive relationship. Second is like it. You shall not make for yourself an idol, right? So no other gods... Don't worship other gods, make our relationship exclusive, and don't even worship through a likeness of another god or a likeness of me. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. This popped up on my um, Twitter feed a couple weeks ago. Uh, This is from Union Seminary. Today in chapel, this is not a joke, right? This is not Babylon B for any of you who follow. This is like for real. From Union Seminary in New York. You go, oh, New York, okay. Union Seminary in New York. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? <laughs> I, I, I literally, like, I did laugh out loud. I laughed. I mean, I just, I'm like, seriously, it's a group of seminary students literally allowing themselves to be captured, sitting in front of plants, on the floor in front of plants, confessing their sins to the plants. I think that's funny. <laughs> Absolutely and utterly ridiculous. But that's being taught at Union Seminary. Right? That's how they worship. Hard to find a more egregious violation of uh, Commandments 1 and 2 or Romans chapter 1. Don't worship created things. But the creator, right? Why? Well, the Lord says, um, because I'm jealous. So because the Lord your God is a jealous God. I'm jealous. Jealousy is bad, isn't it? Well, not necessarily. I'm, when I get jealous because I'm insecure, right? If jealousy rises up in me, it's because I'm insecure about something, right? Somebody uh, asked my wife for advice and not me. And I go, hey, why didn't they ask my advice? <laughs> well, because she probably gives better advice, right? That's why they came. That's truth. 
that's reality. And they're probably going to get better advice and more compassion. So they go to her. But I feel a little insecure over that. So I might feel jealous. Well, God is jealous, but he's not insecure. In fact, it says God is jealous. Same word as zealous for truth. And the reality is only God is worthy of worship. So he says, I'm a jealous God. And when you violate these commandments, there there are consequences for the community. Right? Sadly, these are the the first two commandments, which are the most important, are the ones that Israel struggled the most with. And because they struggled with it, it affected the whole community. So even when it may be a particular individual was not worshiping false gods or worshiping idols. They were affected by the sin of the community. That's, what, that's what's meant in this commandment when it says, the sins will be visited on the third and fourth generation. I'm talking about the individual. He's talking about what happens to the whole family when the, when the culture becomes idolatrous. On the other hand, grace is greater because he says, the sin will be visited the third or fourth generation, but my favor and my blessing will be upon thousands and thousands. Right? So what's the most important relationship? Well, first and foremost... With God, So you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make an idol. But as he says in Deuteronomy 24, 24, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. That is, as individuals, we each suffer for our own sins. But when our culture becomes idolatrous, we all suffer. Right? And I would say we see that even in our own nation as well. Third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is... Um, Don't treat God as common. Don't treat God as ordinary. Don't speak of him as uh, ordinary. Don't speak of him as uh, unsubstantial or unimportant. Or don't speak of God even in a a false manner. That means to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Treating God as if he's really not that big a deal. And then fourth, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why? Well, this is actually the commandment that has the longest explanation. And the Lord says, here's why I want you to do that. Because in six days I created, and then the seventh day I rested. And why did God take a day off at the end of creating for six days? Because he was just exhausted. I was so tired from all my labors. No. God worked and then he rested to create a pattern for how we should live. Right? We work and then we rest. We work and then we rest. And when we rest, we remember. And we remember that God created all things and that he's given all things for us richly to enjoy. And that he provides for all of our, our needs. And so he told the people this first when he gave them manna. He said, collect the manna for six days. But on that sixth day, collect a double portion, right? And then just rest and trust in my provision for you, right? Relish in the fact that I'm good and I'm gracious and I'm kind and I've made all of these things for you and for your enjoyment. And when he explains, uh, Moses will explain this Sabbath again in Deuteronomy 5, remember that this generation goes in the wilderness because of their sin, and they don't enter the land. They wander in the wilderness, they die in the wilderness, and then for that generation that's about to go in the wilderness, the law is repeated. It's called Deuteronomy, the second law. And when the Sabbath is given, and the second issuing of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, a different reason, not because God worked and then rested, he says, but you should rest on the Sabbath day because you're not slaves anymore. So don't don't labor frantically seven days a week like the nations around you, but understand your God is a good God and he provides for you. So you don't have to labor like that any longer. 
Be refreshed physically, be refreshed mentally, be refreshed emotionally, be refreshed spiritually, and remember my provision for you. So what do we learn about God's character from those first four rules? Well, I'd argue there's many things, but two in particular. First is God is holy. God is the one true God. God isn't like any other conception of God. And he's revealed himself to you. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is that God is generous. Our God is a God who gives. And he loves to provide. Therefore, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's who God is. God's a God who's holy. God is a God who's generous. And God's a God who's holy and he's generous. What should his people be like? Well, then we should be holy and generous people. So third principle is this. God's rules reveal something about our character and it's, it's not all good, right? What God's rules reveal about our character is that our hearts are idol factories, right? That's why those first two, three, four commandments that really reset our worship toward the Lord, that's why they have to be in place because we, we in our flesh, we just tend to, to find anything else to worship, anything else in which we can find life, right? So, so we're not good inherently at loving God because we love ourselves. We're also not good inherently at loving others because we love ourselves. So the first four commandments relate to teaching us to love God. And the second and the rest of them, the last six, relate to teaching us how to love one another well. So let's read the second half, chapter 20, beginning in verse 12. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land in which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his female servant or his, uh, his male servant or his ox or his donkey or, in fact, anything that belongs to your neighbor. In other words, first let's reset your love for the Lord and then let it trans- transform your relationships with one another. And he starts in the home. First relationships we experience father and mother. Honor your father and mother. And Paul will point out in Ephesians 6, this is the first commandment that actually comes with a promise. So that it may be well with you, you may be blessed, and you may live long on the earth. Which once again, is it's a community promise. Uh, is it true of the individual? Well, it might be, it might not be. But it's definitely true of the community. When, when children in the community obey their parents and love their parents when they're young and then care for their parents and respect them as they age, that creates a healthy community because you've, you've raised children who are obedient and respectful. Right? They've learned submission to authority in the home. On the other hand, when children are disobedient and they're disrespectful in the home, they grow up to be disobedient and disrespectful out in the community, right? And then the culture begins to decline and decay because submission to authority, I would say, is, the, is at the heart of our character issues because it was the root of the fall. Remember Satan came to Eve and he said, Really, do you really need to stay under God's authority? The reason God gave you those rules, right, that you're chafing against is because he, he's trying to, he's trying to uh, hinder your joy. He's trying to hinder your happiness. In fact, he knows that uh, if you take that fruit, you'll be like him. You don't have to stay under his authority. You can be your own God. Right? So submission to authority, learning submission to authority, is I would say it's like an essential character quality. And where do we first learn it? Well, we learn it in the home. And when we learn to submit to mother and father in the home, that's where we learn to submit 
to God. All right, so he starts here in the home. Second, uh, you shall not murder. Right? You shall not take your neighbor's life because our God is a God who gives. So be someone who gives, not someone who takes. What's the most important possession of your neighbor? Well, obviously his life. Don't take your neighbor's life. Uh, don't take your neighbor's wife. You shall not commit adultery. Don't take his life. Don't take his wife. Don't take his stuff. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Uh, don't take his reputation. Don't take his life. Don't take his wife. Don't take his stuff. Don't take his reputation. This refers specifically to the court of law, but it's extrapolated later in the law, in the law of Moses and in the prophets to include uh, any disparaging of your neighbor's reputation, any gossip, right? Don't, don't take the things that are most precious to your neighbor. Okay, those, those five things are pretty straightforward. Um, I think that uh, with a little bit of effort, we could all obey those pretty well, right? I've, so far, I've done well. Uh, okay, on five, um, you know, <laughs> better now. Um, murder, adultery, stealing, buffaloes. Okay, I'm pretty good. I can kind of, I can get after those things. They're straightforward, but, but what do those really mean? Or does, are they given just as, as a simple list of rules to obey? Uh, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 5 through 7 actually, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, I, I believe what the Sermon on the Mount is in a sense is Jesus' exposition of the law. Right? It's Jesus' exposition of the law. Because what happened in Jesus' day, by his time, is that the Pharisees had been, in a sense, kind of reductionistic. They had made the law into a list of rules that they knew that they could keep and others couldn't keep. Right? And so they could think of themselves as righteous and they could think of everyone else as sinners or lawbreakers. But they had made the, the list of rules, in a sense, completely external. They didn't deal with matters of the heart. And so Jesus would get up in their face and he'd say, look, you're tithing, according to the law, spices, right? 10% of your mint and cumin and dill, but you're overlooking the weightier matters of the law, right? The essence of the law, which is mercy and loving kindness and justice. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus will say, to the, to the multitudes, and there are some Pharisees sitting around that he's trying to insult. He says this, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because the Pharisees don't really understand the heart of the law, the essence of the law. What God was really trying to get after, which was not just conforming the, the external behavior, but transforming the heart. So Jesus will reinterpret the law for them. Verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his bro brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He's saying, great, you haven't committed murder. But do you have anger in your heart? Because genuine righteousness isn't just taking from your brother, it's actually giving to your enemy. Right? It's giving. So those who are taking from you, they're taking your cloak, well, give them your robe as well. They say walk one mile, well, walk two. Bless those who curse you. 
Do ki- give him kindness. Remember, God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He shows you that he's a God who gives, not a God who takes. And so the essence of the law isn't just don't take this, don't take that, don't take this other thing, but love, right? It's an ethic of love. So there's one more commandment. It's the 10th commandment. And it reads like this. You shall not covet. You shall not covet. Right? Don't, don't covet your neighbor's wife or his wife or any of his stuff at all. Don't, his oxen or his house. Or don't, any of his, uh, his crops in the field. Don't covet anything. Don't long for that. Don't, don't want to take that. Don't even want to take it. It's not even that you don't take it, but don't even want to take it. Don't, don't lust after that. So maybe you go, okay, well, one through nine I can, I, can, I can abide by, but wow, don't even lust for those things, don't even long for those things. Paul will use the terminology uh, greed. He says it's, it's greed, which in Greek means to have more, right? I want and long for more than God has given or other than God has given, specifically the stuff that you have, I want and I long for. And Paul says that greed is the same as idolatry. Oh, we're all the way back to one and two. That greed is idolatry. You've made something, and specifically something that someone else has, into an object in which you say, that's where life is found and I have to have it and I'm going I'm to go take it. Wow. That's why that's number 10. Because you get through 1 through 9 and you go, okay, I got it. I got it covered. And then you hit 10 and you go, ooh, uh-oh. I don't know. If I'm really honest with myself. Is there anger in my heart? Jesus will say in some mind, is there adultery in my heart, not my action? Is there lust and coveting in my heart? Interestingly, Paul will say in Philippians 3, verse 6, uh, as to this kind of righteousness which is found in the law, right? I can, I can create a righteousness in the law. I was found blameless. Now, he is not saying that he never sinned. What he's saying is, I knew the list of rules. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew all 613. And he knew that when he violated one, what the sacrifice was. So he said, I, I knew when I violated, I'd go make this offering and then I'd be set right. So as to the law, there was no guilt attributed to me because I'd made the right sacrifice. He said, I'm good. I'm good. I'm blameless. But then Paul had a moment when he was uh, meditating on the law and he came across commandment number 10. And he said, uh-oh, there's something broken in me. That, that I can't fix, right? The problem is not with the law, it's not with the rules, but there is a problem with me. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He said, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul says, look, I sat down, I'm meditating upon the law, and I realized, wow, the, the law is really a great gift to me because I wouldn't have known that coveting was a bad thing, in a sense, until I read it in the law. And then I realized, yeah, that's, that's true, coveting is a bad thing. But as soon as I realized that coveting is a bad thing, all of a sudden I began to experience coveting inside of me. And this law, which is supposed to be a really good thing, ended up eliciting this brokenness inside of me, and I begin to look around and realize, I, I want what I don't have. And I may have been done well at keeping all of the nine or even the 613 and making the right offerings, but there's a darkness in my heart that I can't fix. He says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment 
produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. That is, the sin was awakened actually when I read the law, which is good. So I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And so the law is righteous and it's holy and good. But when a good law intersects a dark heart, it actually elicited more sin in me. So what's the solution? Try harder to keep the law, right? Or maybe create a better law or a better list. Put more effort in? Is that the solution? That's not the solution. All right, that's not the solution at all. I want you to turn back to Exodus again, chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 7. It says, So Moses came and he called the elders of the people and set before them all of these words which the Lord had commanded him. And so all the people answered together and they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought the words of the people back to the Lord. And the Lord said, I doubt it. (laughs) Right? Right. Next week, we're going to look at the sin of the golden calf. Right? Man, after they've all, they've seen the fire and the smoke and the glory of the Lord, they go back and violate the first two commandments. Just like that. Right? Have you ever, have you ever been there? Lord, all that you command, I will do. whoops, please forgive me, but from now on, I promise, I will never again fill in the blank. And then we break our promises, don't we? Right? The promise is not with the rule, it's not with the boundary, the promise is with with us. Right? The promise is that that we often have a a desire that's not to obey, and we don't have the, the ability when we want to obey to actually accomplish it, and Paul will talk about that in Romans 7. He says, man, wretched man that I am. I want to do what's good and I want to do what's right, but I can't. And the problem is not with the rule. The problem is within me. I don't, I don't have that desire. I don't have that ability. In fact, uh, when you get to the very end of Deuteronomy, after the second giving of the law, Moses will write in chapter 30, right, right at the very end, he'll say, you need to understand this. The law is not too difficult for you to obey. It's not way up in heaven like you've got to send somebody to heaven to get it. It's not way in the depths of the earth. You've got to send somebody to the depths of the earth to, to dredge it up. In fact, it's right in front of you. And you can, you could, but you won't. Because of the darkness in your heart. Because of that stubborn commitment to do what you want, when you want it, all the time. So, if keeping the set of rules and keeping them better or creating a better set of rules, it's not the solution. What is the solution? Or if I can say it differently, should we, the church, follow the law? Will the law fix us? It's rhetorical. You know the answer is no. Galatians 3, verse 24, Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. Right? The law shows the perfect holiness of God, and then the law reveals our own sinfulness and shows us where we need a better way to approach. Because we can't, in our own strength, transform our hearts. Maybe we can conform our behavior to a set of rules, a list of rules and regulations, but we can't transform our hearts. And so Paul says, that's, that's what the law does, is it drives you to your need for Christ, right? You need something better, and that better is Christ. And so Jesus will say in the Sermon on the Mount, I actually have not come to abolish the law and the prophets. What I came to do is to fulfill them. I came to fulfill them. And so Jesus would live on this earth, he'd, he'd walk through this earth, and he would 
um, listen to his father and he would obey his father and he would keep the law absolutely perfectly. He committed no sin under the law. He committed no sin outside of the law. He lived a perfectly righteous life. And as a result, he was the appropriate payment for our sins. All sins committed under the law, all sins committed outside of the law, all sins committed by Jews, all sins committed by uh, non-Jews, all sins committed in the past, all sins committed in the present and the future, because he lived a perfect life. He was the perfect sacrifice to pay for all of those sins and fulfill that old covenant. And because the old covenant has been fulfilled in Christ, he was a Jew who lived perfectly righteously under the law, right? So because he fulfilled it, he had the right to set that one aside and create a new covenant for us. So we are no longer under law, we are under grace. That is, we are no longer under a system that tells us what to do, but doesn't provide the desire and the ability to do it. Right? You're not under that system any longer. You're under a system that tells you what to do and provides you the desire and the ability to do it. That's law and that's grace. Right? That's law and that's grace. Maybe you say, but wait. Brian, one of the things I've noticed as I read the Bible is nine out of the Ten Commandments are actually repeated in the New Testament. Why? Because God hasn't changed. Right? We, we still owe God our undivided affection because he's still God. He has not changed. And we still owe love to our neighbor because our neighbor is still made in the image of God. So we still owe that to our neighbor and we owe that to God and God has not changed. But what's different is the system. I don't live under the old system that tells me what to do, but doesn't give me any desire and ability to do it. I live under a new system called grace that tells me what to do and gives me the desire and the ability to do it. Let me illustrate for you. Um, my family's background is, is Swedish. So imagine that at some point in time I decide, you know, I think I'm going to renounce my U.S. citizenship. I'm going to move to Sweden. I'm going to become a, a Swedish citizen because um, their health care is so great, right? That's, that's where I'm going. I'm going to go to Sweden, become a Swedish citizen. Now I've renounced my U.S. citizenship. I was born in the U.S. and I was raised in the U.S. and I was U.S. citizen for my entire life. But now that I've renounced that, I'm living in Sweden. I'm an, a Swedish citizen. Am I under U.S. law? No, I'm not governed by that any longer. I'm governed by Swedish law. But interesting thing, there are a lot of laws that correspond between the U.S. and Sweden. right? Because man is who man is, and truth is what truth is, and so there's some correspondence, right? But I'm still under a completely different system. Well, let me give you another illustration, better illustration. Uh, Someday my kids are going to grow up, and they're going to leave the house, Right? And when they grow up and leave the house, I hope and pray that they continue to bathe and that they continue to clean their bathrooms and clean their rooms, right? And eat healthy. I want them to do all those things when they leave. And uh, you know what? Uh, I think that they will, and I hope that they will. I expect that they will. But when they go out and they form their own home and they're living independently, if they do those things, they're not going to do those things because I told them to do those things. Because I won't be around telling them what to do. They'll do those things because they realize these things are good for me. And I want to do those things. And now I have the ability, because I have the self-discipline, I have the desire and the ability to do those things, but not under my rule and reign, under their own, because they've become mature. And so the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ into a new system called grace, which gives us the desire and the ability to do what brings us life. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. 
If you wanted uh, to do something this week, kind of bring some freshness into your life with the Lord, memorize Romans 8, 1 through 4, and just meditate on it this week. Verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just just sit there for a minute. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. You are not under shame, and you are not under guilt, because Jesus Christ has paid the penalty of your sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law or the principle, right, the new system of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the principle or the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. See what Paul's saying? The problem is not, is not with the law, so to speak. The problem is with us. And our deficiencies, our lack of ability and desire, revealed the fact that the law itself is deficient because it's just a set of rules without any empowerment, right? Without any source of desire being embedded in us or any ability to do the law itself. And so what did Christ do? Well, Christ lived righteously under the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law so that he could set aside that old system and put us under a new system in which his spirit lives within us and transforms our desires and our longings and our attitudes and eventually even all our behaviors. And so we want to do and we can do what brings us life. That's an entirely new way to approach life. And it's freedom. So... As we close, I just want to give you one application question. It's this. Are you trying to be a better person? Intentionally ambiguous question. It's a little trick question, right? Are you trying to be a better person? That, that sounds like you, you, should answer the, you should answer yes, right? Or are you trying to be a better person? It's, it's good to be a better person, right? Are you trying to be a better person? Are you, are you trying to be a better person so that you can earn God's favor? You're saying, you know, if I can just clean up this and this and this, then I'll, I'll, I'll be at a place where I think God will love me and God would accept me into his eternal home. I could, I could have heaven. I'm trying to be a better person to earn God's favor. Um, you need to just drop that. Because you can never actually, in a sense, be good enough because God is absolutely perfect. The standard is perfection. And so since none of us can reach it, He said, I'll I'll have my son reach it for you and then I'll give you his life as a free gift. So maybe the decision for you this morning is simply to say, God, thank you. I realize I I can't be good enough to earn your favor. Thank you that I have your favor because of Jesus. That's a really freeing thing. You You can stop laboring to earn God's love. Instead, just reach out and say, thank you that you love me in Jesus. Because of Jesus, you love me. You love me forever and you love me unconditionally. And you have to have that first moment where you realize that that's, that's why Christ came. Right? The law shows that we're just inadequate. Christ came and said, you're, you're inadequate, but I am adequate. So I'll give you the gift of life. And let me encourage you, if you've never made that first decision this morning, just reach out to God in faith and say, God, I believe. I believe that Jesus sets aside my debt. He removed my debt and he gives me eternal life. So are you trying to be a better person to earn God's favor? Give it up. Or maybe you say, you know, I already have believed. Same question. Are you trying to be a better person? 
You're saying, okay, now I've got the right set of rules. I got the right list and I'm going through them every single day, right? I'm going through them every single day. And every single day, because I'm checking everything off, I'm becoming a better person. Maybe you're on you version, right? And you're just clicking through your Bible reading plan. Maybe you've got four Bible reading plans, right? And boom, you're earning badges, right? And all your badges are going out to all your friends. And they're going, oh my gosh, this is a really righteous person. they got seven, eight, nine reading plans going. And they're reading constantly, all, right? And that, that, that proves that you're a righteous person, right? Now, what is the righteousness God is trying to produce? It's a transformation of the heart, not just the behavior, right? On your own, you can transform a bit of your behavior. You can change some of your behavior and become, in a sense, more uh, socially acceptable to the people around you or the people in your small group in your church, right? But what you can't change through your own effort is your heart. Your desires and your attitudes, the deeper things of your heart, the, the, the coveting, the lusting and the longing and the greed, that darkness that's in each and every one, we can't, we can't reach that deep. Only the Spirit can. So maybe this week your application is, you know, all that I'm doing right now is I'm just I'm giving the world access to all of my affections. And you, you, there needs to be some, some different habits and patterns so that the Spirit has access to you. So maybe you do need to actually download your version and start reading your, your Bible because you're not, you're, not you're not getting any intake from the word or prayer or fellowship and you need to you need to be in those environments in which the spirit can actually touch your heart or maybe you are doing all those things but you're doing them with an attitude and expectation that if I go through the list that demonstrates my righteousness and you need maybe do the same things but with a completely different attitude so you know Lord I whether it's three minutes or three hours or three days alone with you This doesn't change me. What changes me is you. And so as I open my word, I say, Lord, you have access to my heart. You have access to to all of my affections. Let your word just come off the page and transform me. Convict me of sin. Bring me encouragement. Bring me me your joy. Lord, change me from, from the inside out because that's what it means to live under God's grace is that he loves you unconditionally and eternally. And if you obey him, he doesn't love you more. And if you disobey him, he doesn't love you less. You have security because you're in Christ. Therefore, with courage, you can go before him and say, this is who I am. This is all of who I am. Change me. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would be people who learn what it means to not live under a list of rules, but under your grace. Father, I pray that we would not be foolish enough to think that we can earn your favor, but we would just rest in the blessing that we have your favor in Jesus. And I pray, Father, for us, uh, personally, individually, but also as a community in the way that we love one another, that we really would be transformed and the world would look in and they'd see uh, the way that we serve and we forgive, um, the way that we we sacrifice and initiate, and they would say, you know, I want to be a part of that and I want to know the God of those people because clearly he's different Clearly he's holy. Clearly he's generous because they give, he must give. Father, I pray that you would transform us so powerfully that people would be drawn to your son Jesus through us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week. Uh, If you want to read ahead, Golden Calf, Exodus 32 through 34.